Let me read Daniel chapter 1 for us, and you can follow along in your Bibles. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Aspenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? And so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God will bless the reading of his word. Join me in prayer. 
Father, as we reflect upon this chapter and review what we've already considered and as we reflect upon these last few verses, give us a sense of wonder and amazement at how you so beautifully and wonderfully and definitively and sovereignly work in the lives of your people and even in and through the lives of those who are outside of your kingdom and who are set opposed to it. You are sovereign, and may we leave this place of worship today more convinced of your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you agree with me that most Christians and most churches want to be influential in culture? After all, didn't Jesus say that you are salt and light? You're in the world, and you are to influence the world as salt would influence and flavor and preserve food as light would push back darkness and bring about understanding. And so how might or or how have Christians and churches gone about seeking to be influential in culture? One way is through political activism. For example, they might see the policies passed that are contrary to God's Word and think that the best course of action is to make a political counter-assault. And so the church, in effect, becomes what might be a de facto part of a political party. Though every individual Christian is to engage the political process, we are told in Scripture that we are to be faithful as we are citizens of heaven. That means we're to be faithful citizens of the country to which God is, in which God has placed us. And so individually, we are to be very engaged in the political process. We are to vote. But the church should not be in the business of being a political entity to bring about change in public policy. Another way that we might think that we can influence culture, and indeed some have taken this route in recent days, is to cave to cultural pressure to embrace things that are blatantly contrary to God's Word. And we are commanded in Scripture to stand firm on biblical truth. And as individual Christians and as a church, we must plant our feet solid on biblical truth and not budge one one inch. And I have been amazed and shocked in recent weeks as... The moral decay of our culture has seemingly accelerated that people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, churches that think of themselves as part of the body of Christ, have caved to political pressure or cultural pressure to adopt things that are contrary to God's Word. Have you been surprised? We must stand firm. 
So being a political activist church is not the answer to influence culture. To cave and just simply buy into what culture is teaching is not the way to influence culture. And withdrawing is not the way to influence culture either. There's a tendency, especially for conservative Christians, to get so fed up with the culture and with the world that we just simply retreat to our fortress and build the wall so that those impure things out in culture cannot taint us. Now, what's absolutely crazy about that is those that are in this fortress trying to protect themselves from the world's pollution are polluted themselves. (laughs) They're concerned about cultural sins defiling them and the reality is that the church has plenty of sins within her walls that are defiling Jesus said you're in the world yeah we're not to conform to it we're not to be of it and so we're not to be a political activist church we're not to cave and buy into what culture is saying and we're not to withdraw but there's a fourth thing that I think we should not do in order to influence culture, and that is to seek to be relevant. Some churches and some Christians, I think, with the best of intentions, want to be viewed by the world as as having a place at the table, being relevant, being important. And so the tendency is that, you know what, if we do these things, if we have a blood drive, if, if we open up our church to be a polling place, if, if, if we get involved with, with handing out coats to impoverished people in the winter, if, if we open up a food pantry, if we go and, and repair the homes of the needy, we'll show culture that we are relevant, that we are needed. Now I want to be very, very clear All of those things that I have just mentioned and many, many more are things the church, this church, should be doing. We should be ministering to the poor. We should be engaging culture. We should be opening up our doors for the community neighborhood meeting to take place in our church or whatever it might be. We are to serve our community, but not to be relevant We do so out of love for Christ and to demonstrate Christ's love for the world that some might come to faith. Do you see the distinction there? Daniel 1 tells us how we are to be influential in culture. And today, I want us to review how Daniel came to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful rulers of his day. And and this should be surprising. And why King Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel and his three friends. That's influence, isn't it? So how did this this come about? And and we we see in Daniel chapter 1, if you just think of Daniel chapter 1 as God sovereignly working to position Daniel 
to have influence in the Babylonian culture. And so we're going to talk about that today, do some review. But then in the coming weeks, when we get into Daniel chapter 2, we will see Daniel moving from the place of being positioned for influ- to have influence to actually be promoted to have influence in culture. Because at the end of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is given a significant position in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And so let's look in review at what we find here in Daniel chapter 1. And, and I want us to begin by, by looking at verses 1 and 2 of Daniel. And here we find two principles that we see throughout the entire book of Daniel. Let me just simply state once again, what we're doing now is reviewing what the things we've already talked about. So if I mention something that doesn't is not clear, you can go back and listen to the three sermons I've already preached out of Daniel chapter 1. But I want us to have a perspective, especially since it's been five weeks since we've looked at the book of Daniel, that will give us a good grounding to, to set off into chapter 2 next week. So in verses 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1, we find two perspectives. One is a historical perspective, a biographical perspective, and indeed the first part of the book of Daniel through chapter 6 is basically the life of Daniel and his three friends, biographical, historical. But the other perspective is the vertical, which would be more the theological, the perspective that God has of life today and in the future. And so how did Daniel then get to Babylon? We see this as an example of how these two perspectives work in Daniel chapter 1. So you have this, this horizontal, this historical perspective that is basically man's perspective of how life is, and then you have this vertical or theological perspective that is God's perspective. And so from the horizontal or the vertical, the historical perspective, how did Daniel get to Babylon? Well, it's very simple. It's answered in, in chapters, in verses 1 and 2. Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 1, besieged or captured Jerusalem. And we know the date of this was 605 B.C. And this starts a three-stage campaign from 605 B.C. all the way to 587-586 B.C. where Nebuchadnezzar on three occasions sought to conquer Palestine and bring it under subjection. And we know that he accomplished that because in 586-587, depending on how you date, Jerusalem fell and Babylon captured Jerusalem. But this was the beginning of that process. And so Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. He took vessels from the, the temple and, and sent them to be placed in the temple of his gods in Babylon. Shinar is just another name for Babylon. And then he also deported members of the royal family, the nobility of the land, and also these young people, Daniel and his three friends. And so it's very simple to answer the question, how did Daniel get to Babylon? If we look at it merely from the historical or the horizontal perspective, Nebuchadnezzar is the reason that Daniel got to Babylon. But we know that 
in verse 2, we find something else in play here. The vertical or theological perspective. How did Daniel get to Babylon? Good verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, that is, Nebuchadnezzar's hands, with some of the vessels of the house of God. Isn't that interesting? That the ultimate reason for Daniel being sent to Babylon is God. Wait a minute, I thought God was for his people. He is. But God is in the business of fulfilling his promises, isn't he? And one of his promises to Israel was, if you obey me, you will find blessing. If you disobey me, you will find judgment. And so we see this from Ezekiel and for Jeremiah, that the fall of Jerusalem was judgment against the disobedience of God's people. We also find in Jeremiah 25 the promise of God that after 70 years he will show mercy to Israel. They will be brought back and restored. So the ultimate reason for Daniel's deportation is this this vertical theological perspective of God's sovereignty. We also need to consider that there there are two aspects to this theological perspective. And and one is that, that Babylon is at war with Jerusalem. So the city of man is at war or at enmity with the city of God. And we see this going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and all the way through the end of time, that there's the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God are in conflict with one another. And what we see in Daniel chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 is a skirmish in this great battle that is taking place. But the second aspect of this this ultimate reason for Daniel being in Babylon is the principle of God's sovereignty, that God is fulfilling his purposes. You know, for you and me today, as we reflect upon our individual lives, as we reflect upon what's happening in our culture and in our world, we see things that are troubling And yet the lesson for us is, yes, to acknowledge that perspective of the horizontal plane, but we must ultimately ground ourselves in that theological or vertical plane of God's perspective, His sovereignty. And this is good news for God's people because we are living under His sovereignty, and He is bringing His purposes about, and He has a good purpose for His people that we would be with Him Forever, And so the first part of the book of Daniel then, it's just this lesson about ultimately God's sovereignty at work even in very difficult looking and confusing circumstances like a faithful young man being deported to a foreign land. And then we find in the second major section, verses 3 through 7, that having acknowledged that God is sovereign, his people do face challenges and difficulties living (laughs) under his sovereignty. And so we find Nebuchadnezzar then in in verses 3 through 7, we we, we find reference to this re-education program 
that Nebuchadnezzar has for these, these young people. His tactic was to completely cause them to reject their, their God-centered worldview and embrace this Babylonian-centered worldview. And he employed four tactics to do that. Let me just remind you of them. The first one is to separate them from the normal religious life of God's people. I mean, why did he choose to to deport these these young people to Babylon? He could have easily re-educated them right there in Jerusalem. He had already, for the most part, conquered Jerusalem. But it was that they would not have the benefit and privilege of the regular being a part of the regular life of God's people. So separation from God's people is one tactic that is used. And a second tactic that is used is that in verses 4 and 5, we see Nebuchadnezzar trying to transform their mind. That is to say, he wanted them not only to be separated from God's people, not have that benefit, but to think differently. And so he set out on this re-education program. He wanted to destroy their God-centered worldview. And he wanted to be replaced with a Babylonian-centered worldview, a pagan worldview. In in verse 5, we find yet a third tactic that Nebuchadnezzar uses. And this will come into play in just a moment when we look to this third major section of the book of Daniel. And it was he sought to seduce them with this fine food and fine wine from the king's table. And this is simply emblematic of all the good, pleasurable things that Babylon had to offer. And you know as well as I know how tempting it is to buy in to these worldly pleasures and to seek them rather than to seek God. And so the idea was for these young people to be so enamored with these good things that they would soon forget God and his kingdom. And then fourthly, Nebuchadnezzar gave them new names. Really nothing wrong with, with an Israelite being given a name that's, that's the name of a foreign country, as Joseph was given a new name in Egypt. But the point was to further cause them to forget who they were, especially in light of the fact that these names were related to the pagan gods of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's agenda then by using these four tactics, was to get Daniel and his three friends to denounce God, to reject a God-centered worldview, and to totally embrace full citizenship in Babylon, and to think and live and act like Babylonians. And so how are we then to respond to cultural pressures because our culture today is doing the same sorts of things. Trying to tempt us to reject God and a God-centered worldview and to start acting and thinking like the world to turn from enjoying the blessings of God to enjoying the benefits that the world, the worldly pleasures offer us. And how are we to respond? We find that we're to respond the same way that Daniel responded. We find this in verses 8 through 16 of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel resolved in these verses not to defile himself. He wanted to remain faithful to God. 
And so as he looked at all of his options that was afforded him, in all practical purposes, he was a captive in this foreign land, and so he was under the authority of these officials of the king's court, these eunuchs. But still, given that, Daniel wanted to be faithful to God, and the one thing that he saw that would enable him more than anything else to remain faithful to God was not to partake of the king's food and the wine. And so we, we, we see this interchange then that Daniel has with the chief eunuch and the steward that was placed over him in verses 8 through 16. And as you remember, it wasn't so much that Daniel was concerned with being ceremonially defiled by partaking of this food that was defiling him because it was Babylonian food and not, not kosher. It was not that the defilement was that it would lead him to depend upon the pleasures of Babylon and not God. Daniel saw this as being a means to draw him away from God and to embrace Babylon. And so he said, I want to be faithful to God. Now just stop and think about that. Daniel didn't try to do a, anything, a, a political counter-assault uh, assault to deal with this pressure. He didn't cave. He didn't withdraw. He engaged. And he wasn't trying to be relevant. No, Daniel was simply being faithful As an Israelite, he was seeking to be salt and light in New Testament perspectives as he was living in this foreign land, Babylon. And that is our response to this cultural pressures today. We want to have influence in culture. And Daniel 1 tells us that the way for Christians to have influence in culture, the way for the church to have influence in culture, is to be faithful to God and not seek these other means to deal with the particular aspects of culture. Each of us individually should strive to stand against the, the cultural pressure, the tide that, that is very real, the current that is ever flowing against us, we, sh- we should seek to respond to that by being a faithful disciple to Jesus Christ, which means that we're faithful in our marriages, that we're faithful as employees and as an employer, that we're faithful as a student, that we're faithful in our neighborhoods, that we're faithful as church men and church women. Daniel teaches us that we are to be faithful and to stand boldly, respectfully, and humbly, fully devoted to Christ 
as we resist the pressure of this culture that is ever pressing against us so that we would conform to culture and reject God. And so that's what we've looked at so far in review. Daniel was deported to Babylon. God is the one that deported him. Nebuchadnezzar sought to re-educate Daniel and to change his worldview and to do things that would cause Daniel to become Babylonian and reject the kingdom. But Daniel was faithful. He didn't try to change the culture. He stood faithfully so that culture would not change him. And that's the big lesson of Daniel chapter 1. And I want to say this, my own personal opinion is, I think individual Christians, including myself, and churches, including ours, can get so distracted by the political process, by thoughts of caving, by thoughts of withdrawing, by thoughts of being irrelevant, that we forget the most important thing, (laughs) and that is to be faithful. If we really want to make a statement of what marriage is, those of us who are are married should say, look at my marriage. Now, to do that, we need to be faithful, don't we, in being married. Now, as we look at verses 17 through 21, I want us to consider this. All that has taken place from Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Daniel chapter 1, verse 16, is to bring Daniel and his three friends to this place, standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. And so in verse 17, then, we find, once again, God is the real actor in this whole drama, He is the one who granted Daniel and his three friends the ability to learn and to understand all of these things that they were taught in Babylon. He is the one who gave them skill in literature. And then for Daniel in particular, it is God God as the one who gave him the ability to interpret dreams, and we'll see that come into play in the second part of chapter 2. And so Daniel stood faithfully. That was his role to be faithful, but God was working sovereignly in all of these many ways to bring Daniel to this place. And then in verses 18 through 20, we see that after the three-year education program, these young men stood there before Nebuchadnezzar, and he compared Daniel and his three friends to the other young people that went through the exact same education program. And Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel and says, none were found to be like Daniel and his three friends. I mean, can you imagine this little boy from from a suburb of Jerusalem stands before one of the most powerful men in the world and is honored by the king. Why? How? Because of God's sovereign will and God's purposes. And God's purpose was that Daniel be positioned for influence in the empire 
of Babylon. Verse 21 is somewhat confusing. Some would say that it contradicts Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, that speaks of the third year of King Cyrus's reign. But in reality, what verse 21 is not at all in contradiction to chapter 10, verse 1. But in the first year of King Cyrus, it's simply detailing a period. That this entire period from the time of deportation in 605 all the way to the time of of the Israelites returning in the third year of King Cyrus's reign, this whole time is simply saying that Daniel was a foreigner in Babylon, but he was a man that was brought to a place of having influence in that culture. The entire time, Daniel is there as God's instrument, God's means to influence. And we know ultimately the influence was that Cyrus would allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple under Ezra and rebuild the wall under Nehemiah. Now, what are the implications of this? We may think that the church has lost its influence, especially in light of these current, the current su- Supreme Court decision and other decisions that, that have been made and just the state of our culture But the lesson of Daniel is this, that God's people, even today, are positioned to be influential in their cultures. That's the lesson of Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was influential because God ordained that Daniel would be approved by that king as he stood before him. God ordained every circumstance that resulted in Daniel standing before the king, from the deportation to the re-education program to becoming a, a vegetarian, enabling Daniel to be faithful, and now Daniel stands praised by King Nebuchadnezzar as one who is now fit for service in the court of the king. Daniel personally, though, as we look at him, we see that Daniel was tested, and Daniel passed the test of faith. Once again, the lesson is this. If you want to have influence today in, as a Christian, influence for Christ in this culture, if we want to have influence today as a church, the The primary thing that we are to do is to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. Yes, Daniel experienced difficulty. We'll see Daniel struggling with a fiery furnace. We'll see Daniel dealing with lions. But throughout all of those circumstances, like our first hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, that we We see these circumstances that could discourage us and could beat us down. But yet, when we look at things from a vertical perspective, not merely the horizontal, historical, biographical, but from the historical, theological, the perspective of God's sovereignty, we're able to rise above the circumstances, not to ignore them, not to deny them, but in the midst of them, and offer praise and adoration to God and be encouraged. And this is the lesson for us today that we would be encouraged as the people of God, even in light of this very difficult cultural situation where we find ourselves. 
that God has a purpose for us today as he had a purpose for Daniel, and it was to have influence. We are put here today in this culture at this time to be salt and light. And we must not be derailed from that purpose by being overcome by the difficulties and moral decay of our society. We need to keep what is important before us, and that is to be faithful to Jesus Christ as His salt and light of culture. We're not to, as a church, try to influence culture by being a political party. We're not as a church to influence culture by caving, though many are caving today, and it's sad. We're not to influence culture by withdrawing. That's the worst thing we can do, second only to caving, I should say. And we're not to influence culture by being relevant, but by being faithful as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let us stand, not conforming to culture, but being conformed to the truth of of God. Dan read from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and following and we see in that passage of scripture that it is the faithfulness of God's people that will even cause the pagans to praise God. Father, we commit ourselves to you. And ask you to enable us, like you did Daniel, to be faithful. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.